Since putting out the last recording, I've discovered an eclectic group of people who have made a habit of speaking against Scientology. Growing up inside the church, I secretly wished that someone would discover the human rights abuses that I was witness to. Finally finding a community that is paying attention and fighting against the abuses of Scientology has been nothing less than a turning point in my life. One of the more vocal of these people is a man who calls himself the Angry Gay Pope. His shtick is to go to Scientology hubs in Los Angeles and, well, you can listen for yourself. Here he is inside a Scientology building in Beverly Hills talking to an employee. And just to warn you, this clip gets loud. Um, so, I live in WeHo, and I was wondering what's, like, West Scientology... Or, or? Yeah, West Hollywood, yeah. Oh, cool. Which is right next to here. Right, right. And I was wondering, um, like, what's Scientology's position on gays? Um, Scientology doesn't really have a, a position on... Gay. You know, like the Catholic Church is anti-gay, for instance. Right. Well, uh, Hubbard doesn't really, like, say... He doesn't get into into that like there's oh he doesn't no i mean there's there's gay people that that well you know i just looked here on page 125 of dianetics and it says the sexual pervert uh includes homosexuality lesbian sexual sadism etc and all down the catalog of ellis and craft agony is quite ill physically so like right here would you like to read that part i've read dianetics uh well then how come you couldn't remember that on page 125 uh he says that homosexuals are perverted you know why? You, why should I read a book like that? That's going to tell me that I'm evil. And are also, you, are you are you here to 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 because you generally want to well, talk or just make sure you? I wanted to I wanted to ask you where Shelley Miscavige is. Where's okay, Where's Heber Gents? Where's Shelley Miscavige? If you came here for that, then there's there's no reason to to talk about that sort of thing. Okay, well we won't talk about that. Maybe we can talk about where Rust Bell is. Okay. You need to be here for Scientology is a cult. Free Shelly Miscavige! Free Russ Bellin! Here he is again in a Scientology building in Pasadena, this time with a friend. Please tell me how technology fits in and how management fits in. I just don't get it. I'm confused here. Yeah. Well, the best, the best way... Excuse me for one second, yeah. okay? Yeah. Um, I do have to ask you to go. You're on private property. Hey, Pope. Pope, come here. And Durrell can help you if you yeah. don't want to go. David Miscavige squirrels the jack! David Miscavige squirrels the jack! David Miscavige squirrels the jack! David Miscavige beats his staff! In this next clip, the angry gay pope is standing in front of an outdoor cafe that is filled with Scientologists. A Scientology security guard named Odo is standing in front of him. You know what's about to happen, Odo. You know what's about to happen. Where's Shelly Miscavige? Where's Heber Gents? Where are the missing Scientologists? Aren't they the, are, are they at CST, the Church of Spiritual Technology? Well, where L. Ron Hubbard's words are stored on metal plates to survive World Donald, War III. You need to stop it. Why? Call the cops. Where's Shelly Miscavige? Where is Russ Bellin? Where is Sarah Bellin? Where is Norman Starkey? This is not anything you're allowed to do. Scientology is lying, and the people are being held captive at Gold Base because David Miscavige beats his staff. How much are you getting paid to do this? 
In that last video, the angry gay pope shouted a few questions to Scientologists that sound crazy. What was all that about Scientology's top executives being trapped in secret bases, and L. Ron Hubbard's words being stored on metal plates to survive World War III? In this recording, I will go over those questions and so much more. Because I would like to continue to focus on Shelley Miscavige, I am going to use her biography to bring you into Scientology's most secret of secret places. In the recording after this, I will continue on a path to where and how Shelley Miscavige is spending the rest of her life. In this first part, I will talk about Shelley's life up until the death of the church's founder, L. Ron Hubbard, and then move on to Hubbard's secret plan to remain relevant forever. These two subjects will begin to connect to each other in the next recording. For someone with such a high profile, Shelley Miscavige remains bundled in layers of mystery. From her early life, to her married life, to her imprisonment, Shelley has always been too close to power to be able to focus on her identity. Just as it is hard to hear a whisper over a siren, Shelley's proximity to Scientology's founder, L. Ron Hubbard, and then to her husband, the church's supreme leader, David Miscavige, and finally to her current imprisonment within the confines of an elite secret bunker, Shelley's constant proximity to power has been the biggest obstacle when attempting to separate her individuality from the church. Sources regarding Shelley's life are almost always anonymous, and even then, they are second-hand and worse. It goes without saying that Shelley's story can only really be told by herself or David Miscavige. Nonetheless, I will attempt to relate what I feel is most true about Shelley's life. Perhaps someday, more concrete truths will come out of the woodwork. Until then, we can only take what we are given. Shelley Miscavige was born Michelle Diane Barnett on January 18, 1961, in Dallas, Texas. It is unclear whether her parents were Scientologists at the time, but if they weren't already, they became Scientologists at some point in Shelley's early life. When Shelley was around 12 years old, her parents gave her to the inner circle of Scientology by allowing her to join a group of young people who devoted their lives to catering to the whims of Scientology's founder, L. Ron Hubbard. This organization was called the Commodore's Messenger Organization because they lived on a ship with L. Ron Hubbard, a man who loved being called the Commodore. The CMO, as everyone called the Commodore's Messenger Organization, was an interesting organization. It consisted of well-groomed pubescent women and men, though mostly women. Photographs of the CMO of this era show a clique of young teenagers reminiscent of groupies. Hubbard let them design their own uniforms, so inevitably, they dressed themselves in psychedelic 70s-tastic clothing that unfortunately is now either relegated to the musical Hair or Halloween in the Castro. Shelley was particularly known in the CMO for being fashionable. Hubbard called her Miss Panache. The CMO was tasked with making Hubbard's life easier. This could mean anything from lighting his cigarettes to putting other crew members into line. This young group of teenagers tried to relay Hubbard's direct orders so precisely that they made an effort to imitate Hubbard's voice and body language when relaying his orders. In this way, they were expected to be smaller, younger versions of Hubbard. Accounts of Shelley from this time are contradictory. According to Lawrence Wright's book, Going Clear, a former shipmate described Shelley as, quote, quiet, petite, and younger than most of the other messengers at the time, and a bit overshadowed by the other girls, unquote. Another shipmate said Shelley was, quote, a sweet, innocent thing thrown into chaos, unquote. On the other hand, according to the blog belonging to a former Scientologist named Claire Headley, which at the time of this recording has been hacked, Another of Shelley's former shipmates said, quote, 
You see this pretty young girl with blonde hair and sneakers, but suddenly she'd be interrogating people with, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Unquote. These kind of contradictory depictions of Shelley can be found throughout her life, though usually most people make a point of saying that deep down, Shelley seemed like a good person. As the 1970s gave way to the 80s, Scientology began going through a considerable change. Scientology's international headquarters transferred from a ship commanded by Hubbard to a land base absent of Hubbard, located in Clearwater, Florida. Soon after Hubbard's ship docked for the last time, Hubbard went into hiding, afraid of the government, communists, psychiatrists, and other organizations he thought was out to get him. In reality, he was in a lot of trouble with various governments, including the U.S. government, for committing a variety of crimes. Some of these crimes were related to fraud, but Hubbard's biggest problem was that in the mid-70s, he had committed the biggest infiltration into the U.S. government that as of now, February 2015, is still the biggest infiltration into the U.S. government in history. According to Time magazine, over 5,000 Scientology agents in more than 30 countries had wiretapped and or broken into offices of 136 different government agencies and had stolen documents related to Scientology in an attempt to cover up various crimes Scientology had committed. Hubbard's wife eventually took the blame for the infiltration and went into prison. Hubbard remained in hiding for the rest of his life. Shelley, now on shore, but still inside the core of Scientology, married a former Commodore's messenger named David Miscavige in December of 1982. She was 21, and David was 22. Despite his youth, David had already effectively seized power of the church by this point. With Hubbard in hiding, David took control of all the communications between the aging Hubbard and his church. After taking control of the communication post, David became the only person that could send messages to Hubbard, and the only messages that came from Hubbard went through David. With this immense power, David convinced a paranoid Hubbard that the top leaders of Scientology were trying to destroy Scientology, or perhaps kill Hubbard. Anyone who is a threat to David's power was targeted. An internal reign of terror began. Some of Scientology's top leaders escaped, while others were imprisoned in secret locations for years. During the reign of terror, thousands of Scientologists fled the church and started independent organizations that mimicked Scientology's teachings. Among the independents was Scientology's former second-in-command, David Mayo. When Mayo was still in the church, he had been one of Hubbard's closest friends. Just a couple years before Mayo's defection, Hubbard credited Mayo for saving his life. According to the unofficial Scientology historian John Attic, in an interview on Tony Ortega's blog, there was an internal Scientology video made of Mayo in which he, quote, actually warned that if he became unavailable, it would mean that Scientology had been taken over by malign elements. Hubbard approved the script, unquote. David Mayo was one of, if not the biggest obstacle to David Miscavige's total control of the church. By 1982, David Miscavige was able to convince Hubbard that Mayo was trying to take over Scientology. In 1994, Mayo wrote an affidavit describing what happened to him. This affidavit can be verified by others who were there at the time, but I have taken out some of the names and titles in order to make it easier to read. In the affidavit, Mayo wrote, quote, on August 29, 1982, David Miscavige and others, acting on the orders of L. Ron Hubbard, kidnapped me and subsequently kept me captive and physically and mentally abused me for six months. During this period, David Miscavige told me in the presence of other Scientology officers that if I ever escaped, 
He would personally see to it that the resources of the Church of Scientology would destroy my character and reputation internationally. During that six-month period of captivity, I was forced to run around a tree in the desert in temperatures of up to 110 degrees for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, for three months. I was under tremendous coercion and duress. I was refused medical and dental treatment. After escaping captivity, I lost six teeth and required thousands of dollars of dental work to save the rest of my teeth. I was not permitted to make or receive phone calls, and all letters I wrote were read by Scientology security guards. I was often awakened during the night and interrogated. In early February 1983, I was told to get the idea of leaving out of my head, because I would never leave the property alive. However, David Mayo was able to escape the church. Despite everything, Mayo was still a believer in Scientology's philosophies, and established his own Scientology-like organization called the Advanced Ability Center. David Miscavige kept to his word and made Mayo's life very hard, along with the lives of some of the other members of the Advanced Ability Center. During this same period, Shelley Miscavige's mother, Flo Barnett, also left the Church of Scientology and became a member of the Advanced Ability Center. This move was not taken lightly. To this day, the Church of Scientology essentially declares war on dissenters. If someone leaves the church, they first declare that individual a suppressive person and forbid any connection between them and any other Scientologist. There are no exceptions. Family members are explicitly told that they are not allowed to communicate with the non-Scientologist in their family. If someone leaves the official Church of Scientology and then joins an independent faux-Scientology organization, not only will that person be declared a suppressive person, but the Church will regard that person as an enemy of Scientology. The Church will go after them, as if Scientology's survival depended on the destruction of this perceived enemy. Internal orders in the Church of Scientology, written by Hubbard, declare that suppressive people, quote, may be deprived of property or injury by any means by any Scientologist without any discipline to the Scientologist, may be tricked, sued, lied to, or destroyed, unquote. The Church and Hubbard also created policies of singling out high-profile members who may have done something wrong by, quote, putting their head on a pike. Putting someone's head on a pike meant giving extreme punishments to well-known people in order to set an example and scare the rest of the flock of Scientologists into compliance. It was a preferred method of attack used by Hubbard. It is also a preferred method of attack used by David Miscavige. Although Hubbard's punishments were issued to plenty of Scientologists, they were also issued to non-Scientologists without reservation. These included high-profile members of David Mayo's Advanced Ability Center, as well as Shelley Miscavige's mother. Being the mother of a wife of the leader of the Church of Scientology did not give any special protection to Flo Barnett. For one, Scientology has a black-and-white set of values. A Scientologist will either see someone as evil or not evil. There is no gray area. From a Scientologist's point of view, even though Hubbard was the one attacking Flo, she created her own demise when she left Scientology and joined the Advanced Ability Center. When it came to attacking members of the Advanced Ability Center, Shelley probably did not consider protecting her mother, just as she wouldn't consider protecting any of the other members of the Advanced Ability Center. Besides, Shelley probably was not close with her mother to begin with, since starting around the age of 12, Shelley's only parental figure was L. Ron Hubbard. When it came to David Miscavige, 
there was no love lost for his mother-in-law. Flo had joined the flock of one of the church's most powerful rivals. As David Miscavige was now the most powerful person in the Church of Scientology, he must have felt that his mother-in-law's defection was an embarrassment that could not be ignored. On September 8, 1985, Flo Barnett was found dead. Her death was officially ruled a suicide, but a suspicious one, since the five-foot-three-inch-tall woman had been shot four times with a long rifle. On the other hand, Flo had had a brain operation that she had a hard time recovering from, and was expressing that she was distraught over losing her family. She may have also attempted suicide once before. In Flo's case, it may be impossible to determine the circumstances of her death, but being under attack from Scientology and losing her children and her husband to it, it may be easier to determine the cause of her death. According to an article in Vanity Fair titled Scientology's Vanished Queen, Shelley's response to her mother's death was to simply say, Well, good riddance to that bitch. A few months later, on January 24, 1986, L. Ron Hubbard died of a stroke. He left a modest sum of money to his third family, and then, through some complicated money transfers, left the bulk of his fortune, half a billion dollars, as well as his copyrights and trademarks, to an organization that would attempt to stamp his name into humanity forever. Throughout his life, inside and outside Scientology, Hubbard made statements implying that he wanted to leave a permanent mark on human history. Just before his death, he made a last-ditch effort to ensure that his writings would exist forever. The project was created to, in the Church's own words, quote, preserve the writings and lectures of Dianetics and Scientology on more than 135 tons of archival books, stainless steel plates, and nickel-plated records. These materials are, in turn, stored in 2,300 titanium capsules housed in calamity-proof vaults to ensure the timeless preservation and survival of the Scientology scripture, unquote. What the church's website doesn't say is that the nickel-plated records are allegedly made of gold. The archival project had its start before Hubbard's death in 1982, when Hubbard created a new Scientology organization called the Church of Spiritual Technology. The CST began working on the project by buying property in remote locations. When Hubbard died in 1986, the CST was flooded with Hubbard's millions, and was not only able to see the project through, but was able to also expand, perhaps indefinitely. The plates and books covered in Hubbard's words were placed deep inside vaults in the secret bases around the country. These bases are located in Tremontina, New Mexico, Creston, California, Petrola, California, Lady Washington Mine, California, and my favorite, Twin Peaks, California. The CST owns the property of Sweeney Ranch in Wyoming and began construction there sometime between 2007 and 2009. However, as of April 2014, construction appears to have halted since then. It is possible that the economic crash and permit issues have put a damper on the construction of Scientology's secret bases. Despite the massive undertaking of creating a network of secret bases, the Church of Spiritual Technology is almost completely unknown among Scientologists. Growing up, I had heard something about an underground archive once, but only through a vague rumor. After leaving the church, I figured that the rumor wasn't true because most of the fanciful stories told inside Scientology don't hold any water in the rest of the world. I was recently surprised to find that not only is the Secret Vault project real, it appears to be an expanding project that soaks up millions of the parishioners' dollars every year. 
The secret vault sites themselves are straight out of an episode of the X-Files. No two are alike, but they all share similar features. I will use the site in Trementina, New Mexico as an example of what a Scientology secret base looks like. Because it is located inside 5,000 acres of privately, presumably guarded land, the base is hidden at ground level. Here is a clip of the fantastic reporter and author John Sweeney at the intercom at the gate of the base, which is about four miles away from the base itself. Hi, hello. Uh, my name is uh, John Sweeney, and I was wondering whether it would be possible to come and have a look at the base. Hello. Luckily, the Tramontina base can be seen from the air. In fact, the base has been designed to be seen from the air. Countering the secrecy of the base, a CST logo measuring 2.3 million square feet is imprinted into the ground. It is so large it can only be recognized by aircraft. The logo looks like two interlocking circles with diamonds in the center of them. Without the diamonds in the center, the two circles would be identical to the two O's in the logo of Cool Cigarettes. This is the cigarette brand that L. Ron Hubbard chain-smoked for a majority of his life. About two miles down the road from the logo, there is a concrete landing strip that measures about a mile long. This is remarkable considering that there is no apparent application for a landing strip on a property that houses a logo, a small cluster of buildings, and an underground archive. The landing strip is so long and its materials reflect the sun so strongly that it can be seen on Google Maps even when zooming out to the entire northern half of New Mexico. Some people theorize that the landing strip might be intended as a spaceport for potential aliens seeking out Scientology's spiritual technology. Though this is a hilarious possibility, the most likely theory on its use comes from a former employee of the CST, and the only employee who has ever spoken out about it. He told the Village Voice back in 2012, that the landing strip is meant for L. Ron Hubbard's soul whenever he decides to come back to Earth. This is probably the most likely reason for the landing strip considering the CST logo. My personal and admittedly insane theory is that the cool cigarette-like logo is supposed to be bait for Hubbard's spirit because as any smoker could understand, the most enticing thing that would bring a spirit back to Earth after roving around the universe for a few decades is the prospect of a cigarette. Besides being a spiritual portal back to Earth, the landing strip may also have the dual purpose of being an emergency entrance into the base for VIP Scientologists in the event of an apocalyptic scenario. There is a small cluster of buildings and equipment between the logo and the landing strip that suggests this, but more on those structures later. Between the landing strip and the logo, a road leads to an odd-looking house built into the mountainside. This structure looks more like a giant dollhouse than something that is meant to be lived in. That is because the structure is not a house at all. It is the entrance to the archival vault, which extends into the mountain. According to a local sheriff who toured the vault, Tim Gallagos, it houses the archives as well as the machines that can copy Hubbard's works, though he also said there were places in the vault that the church wouldn't let him see. Past the vault, further along the road, there is a real mansion. Relatively real, anyway. Nobody is allowed to live there. This isolated home was built for L. Ron Hubbard's re-education for when he comes back to Earth. 
Here in this mansion, he could sit back, smoke some cools, and study everything he wrote back when he was in his previous body. A massive 45-foot-long propane tank and a cluster of high-powered communication satellites nearby are indications that the base and house could be self-sufficient if the occasion arose. Another couple miles down the road, past the logo, there is the final and most mysterious part of the secret base. Among a few scattered structures and vehicles, there is a 400-foot-long man-made lake with an island in its center. On the center of the island is a tiny 7-foot-by-7-foot structure. It is impossible to guess the purpose of the lake or the structures around it. The island in the lake indicates a recreational purpose, but for whom? The lake is nearly two miles away from L. Ron Hubbard's mansion, which is a long distance to travel in the middle of the desert. Also, being in the desert, it is strange that there is a lake there to begin with. In fact, on Google Earth, it appears that the desert is in the process of reclaiming the lake. And the overall condition of this section of the base reveals something interesting. It appears to be abandoned. Informants who are familiar with the base say that these days only one or two people are kept there to guard the deteriorating property. In this case, the fruits of an organization worth millions of dollars have been discarded and left to crumble away in the harsh New Mexican desert. Why would the CST build such a temporary installment when its purpose is to create something that lasts forever? Perhaps only the vault was supposed to last forever. But then, why build a lake in the middle of the desert and let it turn back to sand? Why build a mansion that nobody would ever be allowed to live in? These kinds of projects take an immense amount of time, money, and planning. Keep in mind that this is just one of the five known secret bases. I do not have a good answer to these questions, but I believe that it does not matter. The Trementina base and the secret base network is a giant ruse. Its construction is a distraction. It is human nature to be enthralled by the discovery of secret places, and the leaders of Scientology are well aware of this. They are also aware that it is human nature to want to be in on the secret. Perhaps the CST asked super-rich Scientologists to donate large sums of money to the secret project as a fundraising scheme. The lake in the middle of the desert might be an indication that the CST was thinking of making the base a secret resort for rich Scientologists who donate large amounts of money. This idea is not too far-fetched. Tom Cruise and other celebrities have been known to stay at the Twin Peaks base. But the truth is, the whole secret base network is nonsense. The Church of Spiritual Technology has another purpose entirely. Something that is more sinister than secret. Though its purpose doesn't have to do with the end of the world, it does have to do with the end of Scientology, as well as the end of Shelley Miscavige. In the next recording, I'm going to stop focusing on the magician's hands and start looking into the magician's pockets, into something deeper and darker. Here, as we begin to adjust to Scientology's true darkness, we will begin to find that there is someone in the darkness with us. It is here where we will find Shelley Miscavige. But until then, as always, I will let Scientology have the final word. Here is the man himself, L. Ron Hubbard, speaking about a trip he took to the Van Allen Belt, which is in space. The other clip I'm going to play is Scientology's most recent commercial, which aired during the 2015 Super Bowl. Well, it starts like this. It starts like this. I was up in the Van Allen Belt. This is uh, factual. 
And uh, I don't know why they're scared of the Van Allen belt, because it's simply hot. Uh, you'd be surprised how warm space is down amongst the clouds and so forth. It can get pretty cold and damp. But you get well up and uh, sunlight shining around, that sort of thing. It's quite hot. And uh, the Van Allen belt was uh, radioactively hot. A lot of photons get trapped in that area and so forth. And I was up there watching the sunrise. Well, that was very interesting, and uh, my perception was very good, and I was good taking a look at Norway and Essex and the places around, you know, and getting myself sort of oriented. And then something happened to me that I didn't know quite what had happened to me. I, I thought some facsimiles must have appeared in front of me, but they didn't look like facsimiles. And uh, uh, some other things happened, and uh, I had a feeling like I might possibly go into the sun and... Uh, a few other little uncomfortablenesses there were, uh, that, that wasn't what awed me. But I got confused. I got confused because the sun was suddenly larger and then it was smaller. And somehow or another I was doing a change of space process that I myself was not uh, uh, familiar with. We live in an age of searching. To find solutions. To find ourselves. To find the truth. Now imagine an age in which the predictability of science and the wisdom of religion combine. Welcome to the Age of Answers.